Welcome to the latest episode of Leverage. I am thrilled to have a dear friend, a client, a um, circle of influence, if you might say, and also part of one of my favorite families in the entire world, who I just realized I was saying their last name wrong all of these years. Hopefully you'll forgive me, Mama Peruccio. Um, but I would like to introduce um, Anna Maria Perugio. Um, She is an incredible, incredible family lawyer. Um, and uh, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Especially for after the horrendous Uber ride you had to take to get here. It was quite the ride, and uh, we'll leave it at that. Yeah. But I'm here, and I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so, I was like, she should have turned around. I was like, you're still in the 400. She's like, I am coming. So I'm here. I love that the podcast has become this destination. Thank you. It is. Um, so as we talked about, you know, owning a home, God willing, um, is something that uh, most Canadians are are able to to be able to afford and to achieve. And it it goes through all life stages. So from when you were a child and growing up in your family home to you know, passing away potentially in your family home. And among those life stages um, can be a divorce, unfortunately. So I don't know what the, what's the percentage now of Canadians that um, their marriage dissolves in divorce? We're close to 50%. And that keeping steady, (laughs) keeping steady. Did that rise during COVID? It did. It did. And I mean, it's unfortunate, but such is life. And it's a matter of navigating the process and having the knowledge to make the best decision that is right for you. And I think that's critical in family law. um, As a family law lawyer, what I often tell my clients is there is no one size fits all. It is a very individualized approach. And the same can be said about homeownership. I was just thinking that. It's like you're talking, I'm like, are you real estate? (laughs) (laughs) What is, you know, your dream home is not necessarily my dream home. Or your journey, right? Right. Everybody's got their own journey. Absolutely. Um, You actually, um, not to go off topic, but you um, informed me of a Monday in January that was very well known in the industry. It is. called. It's called Divorce Day, which is technically... It's the first Monday in January, and oftentimes it is the day when people realize that perhaps the holidays was something, that the holidays that had passed um, allowed them to recognize that the relationship, the marriage uh, wasn't right for them. They had potentially stayed together in light of the holiday or oftentimes because of children being involved. But come January, New Year's resolutions and trying to get back on track and a dissolution of the marriage is uh, is what happens. Inevitable. (laughs) Unfortunately. Uncoup- or fortunately, cu- uncoupling. What, what, anyway, whatever whatever Gwyneth Paltrow called it. Yeah. So okay. So for anybody who doesn't know, God willing, that it's never you know engaged a family lawyer. What exactly does a family lawyer do? Because I actually just said I'm like actually if someone's being divor- is is getting divorced without children, do you still get involved? And of course that is still a family. It, it is so, yeah. yes. So what does a family lawyer do? What does a family lawyer not do? Yeah. <laughs> I wear multiple hats, um, but a family lawyer essentially, and and how I view my role as of family lawyers, I'm helping families, whether they are married or not. So spouses who are married or not, because you can still be a spouse and, and not married. And I'll, I'll define that momentarily. Um, going through 
what is usually the most difficult transition in in their life. And it can be overwhelming, it can be stressful, but at the end of the day, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and it's a matter of um, selecting the process that fits your needs and the needs of your family and just getting through it. While also adhering to a lot of archaic laws, unfortunately, as well. I know I have some friends who have gone through it and it's been very frustrating based on um, yeah, the laws, not necessarily one-sided on one end or the other, but a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of outdated pieces. So let's maybe just approach, um, one, um, piece, uh, specific to real estate is, and, and that I think a lot of people don't realize is like, what are the options? So someone who is thinking about getting divorced, who's, who's wondering what would happen to my home? How does this work? Obviously it's devastating breaking up the family. You know, you have children in the home. They, you know, they're going to school in the district. What are the options to someone who calls you and, and, um, shares that situation with you? Okay, so at first I need to determine whether the spouses are married or unmarried because the biggest difference... you say unmarried meaning common law? Correct. So a common law spouse is actually someone who has been in a relationship of some permanence of three or more years or they are the natural or adoptive parents of a child. Okay. Okay. So the biggest difference between married and unmarried or common law is the property and the property regime about how to... um, separate property in the event of a breakdown of the relationship. That's the biggest differentiator. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So the concept of of equalization and and each party, when when people come to me and say, well, it's 50-50, I get half, right? That concept of equalization only applies if you're married. So if- Which is crazy. And I just learned this also from a very good friend that happened to her. So if you're not married and you are simply residing with someone, you are a common law spouse and you may have lived together in the same home for a period of time, but you do not have inherent rights to that property. So your name is not on title meaning. Correct. Okay. Correct. So you come into a relationship, that person owns the home or whatever it is, your name is not on title. Even though you are common law, it does not... Automatically entitle you to an interest in the home. Now, there are... Uh, remedies that are trust remedies. They're, they're called constructive trust um, or uh, remedial trust where you are seeking unjust enrichment. And, and the spouse who is not on title oftentimes makes claims to say that, but for their efforts or their contributions to the property in the home, in the home the property wouldn't be worth what it's worth today because they perhaps purchased appliances or they contributed to landscaping or they contributed to other labor that increased the value of the home. So they are making a trust claim Mm -hmm. in the property. Whereas a married spouse, someone who, regardless of whether or not their name is on title, at the time of separation and perhaps an inevitable divorce, Mm -hmm. they that home is considered the matrimonial home. So it doesn't matter that their name is not on title because as the matrimonial home, there are a certain set of rights that that spouse is automatically um, equipped with. And the only difference is a little piece of paper. Correct. But that is a conscious decision that people make. And that was the big uh, decision of Walsh and Bona and the Supreme Court of Canada where the unmarried spouses were saying, well, it's it's unconstitutional, it's unfair that we don't have the same property rights as married spouses. Right. And ultimately, the court determined that it's not unfair because you are making that decision not to be married. Interesting. 
and I so do not want to get off topic and talk about that, but that is so fascinating because there's obviously other things involved in them making that decision. For sure. Based on what they believe in the nuclear family. Okay, so um, children are in the home. You um, are thinking, okay, I'm going to, all right, I have, I have, um, I'm entitled to 50%. I've, I'm legally married. My name is on title even. I have children. So what do I do now? I don't want to leave the house. Like, I don't want to leave the house. I don't want, I want my spouse to leave or I want to keep my kids in the school. It's not healthy for the kids to stay in the house. We talked about the fact that I actually always understood that if the husband or either partner leaves, it's considered abandonment. And you're saying that's not true. So that's not a thing. Uh, Was it ever a thing? And I just like made that up because I watched like Three's Company or something. (laughs) A lot of people watch. I feel like that was like my 80s upbringing, (laughs) like something about that. I saw it in an after school special. So abandoning the home is not is not really a thing. Uh, a lot of people come to me with that and and they are afraid to leave, notwithstanding they may be in a toxic situation, a right, home environment. Right, so many people stay. Right, and, and you're not abandoning your rights. You're not leaving the home and all of a sudden you're saying, okay, I'm walking away from my entitlements. Now, right. what may happen is a situation where one spouse is not on title, Okay. And that spouse, if he or she leaves the home, that spouse will then have to make a trust claim in the same way that an unmarried spouse would make a trust claim from the date of separation onwards. Oh, that's the issue because once they leave, it marks a date. So, of right. Date of separation, right. people again believe incorrectly that the date of separation is marked by either spouse leaving the home physically or in a physical separation. That is not the case. The date of separation um, is defined when one spouse determines that they are no longer in the relationship. So it takes two people to get married. It takes one person to separate and to decide, ultimately, this relationship isn't for me. Right. For whatever reason. Yep. So not for us to judge. There are a myriad of factors that you look at and that a court would look at. And you could have a situation, and, and many times I do, and during COVID, I had multiple situations where parties were living in the same home, but they were living separate and apart. They were essentially roommates, one spouse upstairs, one spouse downstairs. Um, But they weren't sharing meals together. They weren't holding themselves out as a couple. They weren't attending events together. And so they were separated. But they wouldn't have marked the date or they would have. There is oftentimes something that will trigger. So sometimes there is an argument for example, around a holiday. So there was an argument on Mother's Day and that is the date of separation. So that's the day where everything crystallizes. Mm -hmm. So if we're looking at the home, if you're going to sell the home, well, the the, the value of the home is the value of uh, what what you get, what the buyer is going to pay you for. And then we we divide the proceeds and there are other considerations. It's not necessarily 50-50. But there could be a situation where one spouse considers a buyout. Right. So that's one. I mean, you've called me and said, I may have clients for you. Right. They're not sure if one of them can afford to buy exactly. the other one out. But if they can't, then we'll need to sell it. Exactly. So you can buy the other spouse out. You absolutely can. Right. If I, they're willing. If they're willing. And I often start there in situations when there are young children. You want to look at um, how old are the kids? Are they 
are they accustomed to that home? It's the place where they feel safe, where they've Mm -hmm. grown up. I've had situations where some children may have special needs. And so the home has been fitted. I had a situation where a child required a number of ramps um, due to her wheelchair. And so that particular home was very unique. And to sell the home would have been detrimental to that child in particular. Would that have would that have actually come into play or yes, it would have? It it did okay. because the spouse who, so as, as a spouse, you're entitled to your equity in the home. And oftentimes when we're going to court to, and one spouse is bringing a motion for the sale of the home, mm-hmm. it's because they want to access their equity. The other spouse, for whatever reason, either is choosing not to cooperate or had indicated they want to buy the other spouse out, but mm-hmm. haven't secured the financing to do so. Or they're in the midst of a whole bunch of things that are happening uh, throughout the litigation process and the home hasn't sold. So a spouse can say, you know what, we're in the middle of this. I'm going to bring a motion, which is a request um, to a court to have the house sold because a house is not a a pizza where we can just cut it in half and say, you take half, I take half. So if you bring a motion for the sale of the home, you are asking a court to determine if the home is going to be sold. And if so... within the context of that motion, there are a number of considerations. And some of those include who's the agent? Is this a co-listing situation? (laughs) That's where you come in. No, so so what would you say the percentage of of people that you deal with end up selling their house or they actually buy the other one out? Do you find one over the other or? More often than not, when there are young children, and they're in the school district, they will attempt to buy the other person out. Um, Or there's some kind of agreement where in X number of years, if the buyout can't happen. So for example, I'll allow you, we'll come to an agreement, the spouses will allow you to stay in the home for the next three years while little Johnny finishes elementary school. At that time, if you can buy me out, great. If you can't, then the home is going to be sold. And then who would be responsible, for example, to keep up that home in that three years? Both spouses, because if if you are going to sell the home, then they're both entitled to the equity, and therefore you're entitled, you are responsible rather for the liability associated with that home. It could be a situation where they're both continuing to live in the home, right. which is very awkward for an extended period of time. I just heard so many times. It's just, it's children are so smart. They are. They're so smart. They yeah. are. So and they nothing, know yeah. things aren't right. They know that. Perhaps um, their family isn't, you know, the same as their their friends, and things are weird at home. Yeah. Yeah. So that's unfortunate when when there's that tension within the home, right? Or it's very unfortunate when, for example, you know, the again from a custody standpoint, that's a whole other conversation. But I mean, if the let's say the wife was a stay at home mom and is unable to buy out the the one income father who is you know, then they do have to move. Yes. And and that's why you'll have a situation where if we're, we are looking at one spouse who is um, a homemaker and, and doesn't work, that's the situation where we're trying to resolve it without having to go to court. But oftentimes in those cases, that's where the spouse, the other spouse says, well, I'm bringing a motion because you can't buy me out and I want to access my equity. And so now I'm going to force the sale. And at that point, it, it gets really, it really messy. No one wins. An acrimonious divorce with uh, a court-ordered sale is ugly 
Because at that point, I mean, we're in court, we're arguing, um, we're, we're, we can't agree on an agent. So we can either provide multiple names, both sides, and then a court determines that. Right. Or the court provides a name simply because they have a roster and they just pick someone. Um, or the one spouse makes a proposition for we're going to use this agent, but the other spouse, because there's so much mistrust, doesn't want to use anyone that that person said. So we have a co-listing situation, which which can happen. And I've worked with you in situations. I feel like that I would say, I think I've only done one where there was not a co-list for sure, because it's okay. very hard for both sides to ever really feel comfortable, which I mean, listen, I get it. I think it's it becomes a multiple representation issue. I mean, you do Truly. have two people who most of the time have opposite like you said, it takes two people to get married, one person to leave. And a lot of the time that person who didn't make that decision has very different goals than the one that did have to leave. Um, and um, and I think that a lot of people don't know that. I actually had someone that I, I knew from years and years ago reach out to me because she was going to get divorced and um, you know, asked if I would represent them and came back to me and said, you know what, he's making a deal with me and he wants to pick the agent. And I said, no problem. I understand you need to do what's best for you. But did you know that he can have his own agent and you can have your own agent yes. because you don't know where this person is coming from? Just I'm just protecting you. And she was like, no, I had no idea. Right. And I think what people realize also is, is that, well, if I have two agents, I have to pay double commission. That's not the case. All you have is someone representing. It's very similar like buyers and sellers. So buyer has a, an agent and the seller is an agent. It doesn't mean you're, yes, you're paying a total of 5%, but you're not paying 5% on either side. So it's something to consider when you go into it. It keeps everybody above board. And as long as I have an agent on the other side who is not taking it personally either. I think like, I really want to send out this message to any agent who's being asked to be involved in a divorce of a matrimonial home. Our only goal, our goal, our job is to sell that house for top dollar, right. not to get in the middle of that marriage. And I have been yes. involved with so many of them and I've watched the other agents and I've said, it's not our place. I'm going to fight for my client, but my client's goal should be the same as your client goal. They are, before we, and we've done this together, yes. before you go in, everyone's on the same page. We all have the same closing date that we want. We yes. all have, right, we've created, the other issue that can come up is, okay, so the house, we're going to put the house up for 1.5 million, right? Someone comes along and says, okay, we'll give you 1.475. And one side goes yes, and the other side goes no. I mean, you can get, I mean, can you imagine you're a buyer for that? I'd be like, no, thank you. Like, I don't want to get in the middle of your crazy, <laughs> right. right? So going into that situation and saying, okay, we are all in agreement that if we get an offer in this range, there's no fighting and you need to make sure that that's hashed out before that house Absolutely. goes on the market, right? Yeah. Having those parameters is crucial because without it, you will run into a situation where one spouse is refusing, but it's a reasonable offer and the house has been on the market for X number of days and it's not looking good. And then we're back in litigation. And then and it's happened to me where one spouse is simply uncooperative, refusing all reasonable offers, um, coming up with the most ridiculous yeah. conditions, like three home inspections. And it's like, 
what are you talking about? That's yeah, that's no. just crazy. I, I've done enough of them now that I, I insist on that kind of stuff being um, set out at the beginning because it's not good for anybody. And at the end of the day, it's just setting everybody up for failure. Right. So unless you have those parameters set out, no buyer wants to touch it. Like it's just, I mean, if I was the buyer agent, I'd be like, run for the hills because who knows what happens after closing, right? Right. And and that's a situation you want to avoid. You want to avoid the court ordered sale where the home has to be sold or where you've gone back to court in a situation where the parties agreed to general terms for a sale, but they didn't have those parameters in place. So we didn't have um, a deferral to the listing agent for a recommended list price and we didn't have the parameters so about the other fun part <laughs> about you know something like we'll accept an offer within x percentage of our list price or mm-hmm. things like that when you don't have that in place you're back in court and you're arguing all over again so we kind of covered the family law like aspect when there's children is there any major differentiation when you're dealing with with i mean again as you said you get involved when there's just a couple or maybe someone with like older f- children and you don't like there's not that kind of issue or yes so in situations where there are no children so obviously the parenting uh, considerations are not at play and it's about money and it's about who owes who what we're looking at property and we could be looking at support so Mm -hmm. if no kids it's just a spousal support situation and in those cases when the home is sold you have a situation where because there's no agreement and they're litigating the money, so the net proceeds after we pay commissions and the usual adjustments and all of that, that money is held in the real estate lawyer's trust account. And it's sitting there unless and until the parties agree or there's another court order. And then you have situations where because the parties can't agree, they can't even agree on whether or not they're going to go a particular route with respect to putting the money in an interest-bearing account. So the real estate lawyer Mm -hmm. has his or her hands tied because they can't agree, the parties can't agree, and they're just holding money. I had a situation where money was held in trust for over five years, and these people were arguing. and Five years? Making no interest? Correct. Correct. It's ridiculous. It is sad. It is. It's really sad. And those are the situations more often than not when there are no children involved because we're not arguing over well, parenting time. you don't time. have to be on your best behavior either. Always. Right. But when push comes to shove, you're going to want your money. So that's usually, and, and after a year, two years, that's usually the impetus for, okay, let's try and, and settle this because essentially the lawyers are just making money and our money is tied up and just sitting there and we can't access it and we don't want to go to court getting into court everyone wants their day in court everyone wants to argue yeah. over it um, but you truly will achieve more if you can be reasonable and cooperative and come to a resolution on your own and that's usually through i mean i understand there was like a level before you get there where you can go through a mediator correct and that would cost less than getting into a, a family law situation or do you involve the mediator and would that include the f- sale of the home as well you don't necessarily need need a mediator i have situations where i'm counsel for one party and there's another lawyer on the other side and th- through counsel, we're able to negotiate because the parties realize, okay, neither of us can buy each other out. So we do have to sell it. And we've got 
uh, an agent or there are two agents and now we know the home is going to be sold and we're figuring out the other issues as between counsel and we arrive at a separation agreement, which is a valid and subsisting document. It's an enforceable contract. So you don't necessarily need to go to court. You can start a court application in some Mm -hmm. situations and then realize after a couple of court attendances, a couple of case conferences, whoa, this is getting really expensive. It's getting financially and emotionally draining. Let's figure this out because, and it it usually is because of the home. They realize, okay, so we thought we could do this or we thought there would be an opportunity for one spouse to remain in the home with the kids, but it's just not possible. So let's do something where we are still in control of the process as much as possible. I feel like I want to... Uh, end on a positive note because <laughs> like divorce is so depressing but unfortunately it is part of you know one of the life cycles that I do um, get involved with so if you could say there was just maybe something that you're seeing a trend in or a lovely story or something where you know just two people figured out how to get it all together it happens where they do figure it out and it doesn't have to be like divorce isn't the taboo that it used to be and and maybe I'm biased because this is what I do every day but it can be a fresh start a clean break a fresh start a new beginning and and they can become friends afterwards for sure and they can recognize it was not for them and they did the right thing absolutely over and over again for sure for sure and I, I think that's really the biggest takeaway because it's it's not necessarily a depressing thing it is part of the life cycle so we just kind of take it in stride thank you um, I like that. I like that. It was a nice note to end up. So if anyone needed some advice confidentially or wanted to reach out to you, where could they find you? We'll put all your information in the show notes, of course, but um, where can they reach out to you? They can email me, Anna Maria at PeruccioLaw.com. Peruccio. <laughs> yes. Or they can call me 416-904-4487. She's the best. Thank and you. Thank you so much for like battling the traffic and being <laughs> not with a us. problem. <laughs> not a problem. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah.